The Triathlon Show 276. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, I interview Emma Carney. Emma is a double ITU world champion back in the mid-90s when she really was dominating women's triathlon. She's a World Triathlon Hall of Fame inductee and uh, now she is coaching both at a high performance level back home in Australia and also coaching age groupers. Before we get into the interview with Emma, big thanks to our sponsors, Roka, that you can find on roka.com. Roka's wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, sunglasses and other top-of-the-line products are trusted by world-class athletes like Javier Gomez, uh, Lucy Charles Barclay, Flora Duffy, Mario Mola, Katie Zafiris and many, many others. Uh, There is exceptional R&D and attention to detail put into every single Roka product to make you as fast as possible when that is the function of the product or just make the product experience as great as possible when that is the product goal. You can check out all that Roka has to offer and get 20% off your order with the promo code that you can get on roka.com forward slash TTS. And thank you to Zen8. The Zen8 swim trainer helps time crunched athletes get more consistency in their swim training. When you don't have time to get to the pool, get in a 15, 20 minute workout on the swim bench or when pools are closed. Same thing there, get in a 15-20 minute workout and at least you're doing something. The swim bench is a massive improvement compared to traditional stretch cord exercises because it allows you to perform the stroke in a horizontal prone position rather than as you usually do with just stretch stretch cords standing up and putting a lot of stretch through your hamstrings and posterior chain. This means that you can improve your technique much better. For example, you can learn how to activate your core because of the swim bench instability element. And you can work on a high elbow catch, which the swim bench is of a perfect height for. And also, of course, things like swim-specific power and endurance become much, much easier to develop. It is not a big and bulky bench. It is deflatable and inflatable, so you can fold it up and store it. It stores very small that way, so uh, yeah, you won't have to worry about space when, when not using the swim bench. Finally, check out the senate website for the workout library they have there. That will you don't have to reinvent the wheel and create your own exercises or workouts. Just use the ones that, uh, for example, uh, head coach Kieran Linders has created over there. Go to senateswimtrainer.com forward slash TTS to get 20% off your order of the swim trainer. Now, without any further ado, let's get into the interview with coach Emma Carney. So I'm here with uh, Emma Carney, uh, who is today's guest on That Triathlon Show. Welcome, Emma. How are you doing? Hi, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here and to be involved in um, such a great podcast. Uh, yes, uh, great to have you. Uh, why don't you start with just uh, introducing yourself to the audience? Tell tell us a bit more about your background <laughs> and, and and also what you're currently doing, of course. Uh, I'm not a big fan talking about myself, but um, I am. I'm quite old. I raced um, world triathlon events in the '90s. So the first race that I did internationally was the 1994 World Championships in Wellington. Um, and I actually won it. So <laughs> I think I'm the first person to turn up to 
world triathlon or was ITU at the time and just win a world title out of nowhere. So I was ranked 157 or I had 157 written on my um, my race number. And um, I then went on to a very dominant sort of period in world triathlon for the next three years. I won another world title in 97. And I think in that period of three years I won about, um, I think it was just 19 or 20 World Cups, which are now the WTSs, so it was very sort of dominant. And then in 1997, won the world title again. 1998, um, started off the season well, won a few races, and then I went into a sort of a bit of a lull and I was developing a heart condition. So I actually um, was forced to retire shortly after 2000 with a, um, a cardiac arrest. So I've now got a defibrillator and I coach now and um, hopefully I'm coaching some athletes that will be world beaters in triathlon again. Yeah, uh, sorry to hear about that heart condition. I, I was reading reading about it, of course, and and it must be uh, really really frustrating to to have that happen, especially as you were basically headed for the first ever Olympics where triathlon would be involved, and it was in your home country as well. On top of that, yeah, it's. I mean, that sport sport has a lot of twists and turns, and I think that's the beauty of sport because you never know what's really going to happen. You can be the most prepared you'll ever be and anything can happen so you know the fact that maybe I was predisposed to a heart condition and I still managed to have such a dominant period in in my career and um you know I've I I still wouldn't change a thing because it was such a good career and it's such a great sport to be involved in in triathlon so it did it did obviously shorten my career though and I would have liked to have gone on and raced Hawaii and um done more of the longer stuff as well yeah yeah well you mentioned your coaching right now so can you tell us a bit more about that what is your setup are you coaching in a squad environment or is it remote coaching what sort of athletes are you working with so i've i've got an online coaching business and that is sort of more age group and um a lot sort of more reasonably priced um I when I first retired I sort of I walked away from the sport because I was you know disappointed I hadn't made the Olympics I um you know had a heart condition and things were just really really tough on retiring but you know as you work your way through these things coaching is what I really enjoy doing so I developed a website online training and um at the moment I've got a small group of high performance athletes And I think at the moment in Australia, things are very, very complicated with regards to high performance. And I think coaching, if you do it well, can be really quite simple. So I try to create a culture of of excellence around um, a coaching sort of um, coaching support framework. And, you know, every session has a purpose, every session has a reason, there's no junk miles. It's very different to other coaching that's going on in Australia and um, I think I think the results are just about to show. I've got some athletes just sort of going into the under-23 level, so it's um, it's a very interesting time in my coaching. Yeah, that's that must be really exciting. Can you give uh, one or two specific examples of what you would deem 
kind of complicated or suboptimal in general in the high performance coaching setting in Australia and uh, and then contrast that with how you do things differently with with your squad so an example of how things are overcomplicated and um well I believe a lot of people wouldn't believe wouldn't agree with me um for example when you go to a race you have a race plan everything's everything's set up on you know what you need to do you have um different alternatives in your head you have options you have everything planned out and i i don't really see that simplicity anymore i see it very very complicated there's you know there's a lot of people around athletes there's a lot of staff there's a lot of um different people getting involved and it complicates the whole process i like to keep things very simple um because at the end of the day, it's all about you've, you've got to get to the race, you've got to be confident in your training, you've got to know why you did training sessions, you've got to know what you've got to, how you're going to race this certain course and it's all got to be a process and if, it, even if that option doesn't work, you've got other alternatives in your head, you know, that sort of stuff. Um, and around, around the, the simplicity of coaching, for example, I don't see a lot of focus on the bike and I think the bike is really important it's an hour of the of the race this you know we're talking WTS so my theories around the bike is to be fit on the bike because if you're fit on the bike your run is not going to be as affected as if you're not fit on the bike so I don't particularly take my athletes to car parks to learn corners and to do criterium races and things like that I'd much rather go and do a two-hour ride out in the hills fitness all the way through the year two or three hours and then as we approach a racing block we bring in the the speed the motor pacing the time trial work so it's a lot it's a lot more around what you're doing for each discipline rather than like we're probably still doing the same number of sessions but it's what we're doing in each of the sessions yeah and uh that example there on the bike I'm not sure if i explained that very well oh yeah no those are those are two great examples i think and uh, the racing one i think is fairly i mean i think it's self-evident that if you as an athlete turn up to a race and you have maybe a lot of people to answer to in a way they also answer to you but it's just a lot of different uh different uh different things that can to some extent cause additional stress and that's not good for uh for the potential of having great race performance if you have a lot of potentially unnecessary stressors there and then in terms of the bike actually that is a topic that i have discussed with with several uh coaches uh, and uh, i am of the exact same opinion as you that in and draft legal racing and i think it looks like it's yeah. changing a little bit and people are putting more focus on the bike and there was one way with the brownlees coming through of course where that happened and now i think the norwegians are kind of leading the way in a similar way but uh but i still see what you're seeing there as well that there are a lot of squads that do a lot of cornering and technical stuff but they're actually not fit on the bike and yeah you do need yeah, to be fit I, there that yeah i don't you know, a, a ride around a car park doing corners is not a bike session. That's a skill session. Yeah. So do that. That That is not actually a bike session. Yeah. So yeah. it's. It, I find that really, really puzzling. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, those those are great examples, and and I do want to go into your coaching philosophy. But one thing that I want to uh, ask you first, because we just uh, segued from your athletic career, so can you give a couple of examples of uh, things that you think you did really well in your own career, and that uh, that you think that that your athletes can now benefit from you teaching them. But also maybe one or two mistakes that you wish that you could have done differently. Well, I've just written my autobiography, and um, there's a lot of mistakes in there, and a lot of um, things that I did well in there. Um, but I think um, something that I did do really well was the way I approached racing, and that came through a consistency and years of racing uh, track and field uh, track in the uh, you know in the summer down here and cross-country running as I was a you know, junior coming through so the skill of racing I think I did really well and I, I think you know is what really surprised me because I came from a running background what really surprised me when I came to triathlon is that triathlon coaches were telling athletes okay if you're not in contact in the first you know out of the water your whole race is ruined. Now, I've seen people run marathons and they're not in contact in the first 20 minutes and their race isn't in ruins. You know, you can, you've, you've got an hour 40 to get yourself back. So as long as you bike and you run strong. So th- those kind of processes where I don't just accept what the, the normal approach is, I think I do that well. What I could have done better, I think I could have been a lot more patient I think I could have given myself rest days. I think I probably could have been easier on myself when I lost a race. So there's a lot of there's a lot of things that you can change as you as you grow up and as you mature. But I also think maybe that's what made you such a great athlete. You know, maybe the impatience was was required. Maybe my work ethic was required. So it's it's really hard to look back, but. Yeah, with my athletes, what I'm protecting them from, I make sure they're not hard on themselves. So a loss is not really, really bad because you learn a hell of a lot from a loss. And I try and make sure that they focus on the good things in every session, not the bad things in the sessions that hurt and are, you know, where you're not making times. So there I really work around that and I and I also work around you know, you need to get your rest, your nutrition, um, that sort of stuff, making your life easy around training. Yeah, great examples. And uh, with that, let's move into just a little bit more around your coaching and training philosophy. What are the fundamentals that you think that, uh, that most athletes need to adhere to when it comes to triathlon training? I think the most, if, if we really, really make it simple, I think it's consistency. So it's consistency across the three disciplines and specifically in triathlon you need to, because you're always going to have you know, strengths and you're always going to have weaknesses because there's three disciplines involved, you must work on keeping your strengths and also minimising the damage on your weaknesses. So you can't get disheartened that, okay, I'm never going to lead the swim or I'm not the fastest runner. You can't focus on what you can't do. You need to focus on what you can do to make that less of a problem. 
And I think once you start thinking about things like that, okay, I'm not such a great runner, but hang on, what if I learned to run downhill really well? Because a lot of people in triathlon don't run downhill well, even the good runners, because they're like, oh, okay, I'll have a bit of a rest now. So if you're not a strong runner and you can run downhill well, that's a really good one. If you're not a strong runner and you can nail transitions, <laughs> nail the transitions. So all that sort of stuff as well. And even little things like on the run, if you're not a strong runner but, you know, the, a section of the run is exposed to the wind, draft on the run too makes a difference. So all those little things that you can make little time gains not through increased training but just by thinking about it. Um, I forgot what I was talking about. <laughs> but they were other the yeah, training no, philosophies and simplifying, yeah, and simplifying things. Yeah. So I really, really love, you know, pulling apart races and then putting them back together. And I also like finding ways of athletes, you know, of, of getting athletes to the start line and being confident in what they're able to do and not to be dictated to by other athletes. And then there's also, the, you know, when I coach the younger athletes, you know, a, a little um, an athlete that's racing under 23, for example, will go and do an elite race and they're suddenly racing athletes that are 28, 29, 30. So it would be like racing, I don't know, a 10-year-old with an 18-year-old and you would never do that in junior ranks but suddenly when you're an under 23, you've got to do that because you're stepping up into the, you know, the big league and that's a really, really disheartening time. So I think athletes around that age really need a lot of support and explanation and you're being beaten by older athletes, not better athletes and sort of that sort of um, – work around my coaching yeah uh, on on a side note when do you think that on the draft legal side of racing what is the typical peak age in your opinion for those athletes uh, well i think well a lot of the girls at the moment are quite old they're their late 20s i i was 23 when i won my first world title i do think you can perform really well for a long time if you get it right so we see athletes particularly in well in the men's as well but we see athletes that come along and they dominate for a season maybe two seasons and then they're sort of overtaken and it sort of moves on but I you'd have to say that mid to late 20s would be the peak and if you look after yourself well, you should be able to go into your sort of, you know, you could push through to your mid-30s. But you'd, you would have to, you know, a weekly massage, weekly treatment, you'd have to know your injury areas and um, you'd have to really look after yourself, recovery, and not do yeah. any of that excessive uh, training. And uh, and if we turn back to your uh coaching and training so in terms of the general training training aspect what what kind of uh, thoughts and ideas do you have have around that in terms of for example frequency of training duration intensity and and so on just a general overview of what what you believe in there So this is going to be a really long answer. That's fine. That's <laughs> fine. That's what we're here for. <laughs> so if you, 
Okay, so say we say we start at the swim, okay? And in triathlon, there's never one answer. You do have to, to some extent, work out where you're at. So you do need to do some sort of testing at some point. And, you know, ideally when you first turn up with a coach, it would be good for the coach to test you to see exactly, you know, where you're, um, where you're lacking and where you're strong, just, just so you have an understanding. And even if you don't understand the test that coaches use, um, you can make your own up. Like you could make up something like a, in the pool, okay, 2100s, what can I hold? And you could do a short rest or a long rest. You could do whatever you wanted and then you could see if there's any improvement over time. But my theory on swimming is um, I don't actually think a swim coach, a bike coach and a run coach will completely understand triathlon. But at the same time, I do think you do need to work with a swim coach, a bike coach and a run coach when you're young to get that pure technical skill developed. And um, when it comes to whether you're a good swimmer or a, um, a weaker swimmer and you're training, that really, really affects how many times you train. So a really good swimmer might get away with three or four swims a week, around you know under 20K a week, and a weaker swimmer would have to do a little bit more volume and would have to have that you know feel for the water and develop that um, consistency in the water and develop just the fitness around swimming. And I think you'd also have to have – I'm not a fan of – um, saving your legs in anything because if you're going to save your legs, well, the race isn't about who crosses the line with the best saved legs. So I think you should kick in the swim, especially if you're a weak swimmer because you're, otherwise you're just going to be um, losing your legs. And on the, uh, the bike, I think it's all about fitness using terrains to um to improve your fitness so i don't i don't really believe in flat rides it's hilly rides and things like that and um some working on something else i don't see a lot of in triathlon is um gear selection so i'm not a big fan of the not a big fan of the um what's it called compact gearing i don't see the point in triathlon especially I've, it's a thing. Like I've seen athletes, um, you know, they get a bike from whoever they get their bike from and it's a compact gearing setup and they ride that bike. And it, it blows me away. I, I can't believe it. So gearing is so important as well. And I do think that if you spin too much, you um, tire your legs for the run. And all this saving your legs I don't think works. I think that was made up by people who haven't raced triathlon. So, for example, if you – I mean, you can watch a simple one. You watch the Rio Olympics and you can see the Brownleys riding away from everyone and they're riding a slightly heavier gear up the hills. So every time they pedal, they get bang for their buck. And it it actually – it just goes against all the theories and it's something that I used to do in, in triathlon and I used to ride really strongly and run strongly um, to ride a slightly, not not a stupidly heavy gear because that is going to ruin your legs, but a slightly heavier gear than, the, you know, the spinning. And um, I, I try, I, that's how I coach the bike as well. I, I teach them that as well. 
Um, so rather than changing down all the time, stand up and power over little short, sharp hills and things like that. And that's the kind of skill you only get by riding on roads, open roads. You don't get that doing it in a car park, going through corners. So, um, and then my run theories, I've, I've done a lot of writing with, um, with the development team with World Triathlon. So I think um, triathlon run training should be devised or based on the theories of middle distance run training. So what a 1,500-metre um, sort of 3K maximum a 5K runner should do because I, I don't really believe you should train as a 10K runner because we have all that volume from the other disciplines. So, I mean, but then it comes back to whether you've got the kilometres in your legs and, you know, you need to build up to these things. You can't just get an, an athlete that's walked into triathlon and go, right, you're going to do a middle-distance run program, you're going to do some riding through the hills and you're going to swim 30K a week. You know, it's just too much. You have to you have to balance it all and work out what does work and what doesn't work and the athletes need to give feedback as well because if an athlete's constantly feeling tired, like I felt very tired from swim training so I came from a run background. So it's um, it's that juggle as well. I'm not sure. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not sure no, I know that feeling. Of, of, I, I know that feeling of feeling tired from swim training. Uh, it's another non non swimmer, and and it's something that you know, on paper and in theory, it's it's all well and good to say that uh, you can do a lot of swimming because you can recover from it easily. You don't use your legs as much, and then you can go and do hard it's cycling and tight. running. But it's not that's not the case in practice. Uh, yeah no, your shoulders feel like they're up near your ears yeah and and again personally just personal anecdote but i feel like a much deeper whole body fatigue from swimming than from any of the other disciplines interestingly but uh, yeah. what you said there about training the run like middle distance runners that uh, reminds me of an interview i did almost three years ago by now i think with malcolm brown so the coach of the brown brothers at that point and uh yeah that was exactly what what he said and what he brought to bridge triathlon from uh from the track and field world where he was coaching before and trying to uh to train them like the runners like milers and he was talking a lot about the technique element as well when you were talking about training uh training the traffic like middle distance runners are you talking about things, more things like running form or just a training element of it the type of the type of workouts the type of structure to the plan that you're uh, that you're devising for them well i think it, all of it so um you're not going to run fast if you well oh, another another belief i have is and this is very controversial is that i don't practice running off the bike so i don't believe that you need to practice bad running and you don't need to be reminded of how bad you feel <laughs> but if you're fit i think you're going to run off the bike well and i i try that with some athletes and some athletes go oh no i really would like to try it and and they gradually move away from it because they're like well yeah actually you're right i'm running race i'm running well off the bike in races and we don't practice it and when i do practice it i hate it so yeah but with the running, you must have good form, good technique, stay in contact with the running track, so the athletics track. If you can, I like to keep spikes on for at least half of the year just so that you've got that really good form of being on your toes. does tend to rip up the calves and the Achilles, so it does get a little bit dangerous with injuries. Um, but the drills and the skill of running fast 
I believe, can only really, really be tested in a track race. And I like to keep the track races 800s, 1500s, if they're really young, 400s, uh, 3K, maximum 5K, 10Ks. Just because we race 10K, we don't have to keep practising 10K. We're trying to get speed, so we, we need to shorten everything up. Yeah. And uh, so what would be a key workout on the run that, that you might do in the in the kind of competitive phase of the season? Well, every Saturday, and this is – I was very fortunate when I was growing up. I was at a school and um, Steve Ovette was a, the world record holder for the 800, I think he was, a British um, Olympic gold medalist for, for the 800. And – his training partner came and taught at my school in Australia. And so I was like, oh, wow, because I was into running. And one of the sessions that he taught me was a Saturday morning they did their 1K reps and he called it the three-minute session. So they obviously run further than a K, but you run, you find a grass area and you run for three minutes, you wait a minute and you run back and you've got to get back to where you started and you do that out and back three times so you end up doing six reps and you can do it with a group and on the way out you know you might be in the middle of the group and then on the way back you've got to try and stay in the middle of the group so that was kind of like a key Saturday session but a key sort of track session would be um, Tuesday was always track session day it would be something like um, I remember one session we did was a K and we had two minutes rest, and then we did 10 300s with 100 floats, and you had to keep them all close to 45 seconds, and then you had a K to finish off with, and that last K <laughs> was an absolute nightmare. I um, tended to fall apart on that one, but the first K was always okay, and then the last one, really tough. So that sort of stuff where you're working on like holding a threshold or holding a faster than race pace and then that hard, fast running, and then going back and then seeing if you can hold it again. Are those, they're the really key. But, I mean, with my younger athletes, because that's really quite a difficult session to, to get yourself on top of, um, I might keep the session closer to 400s, and, you know, we might do, I don't know, four sets of two 400s, and you'd aim for an easier one than faster than race pace, easier one faster than race pace, and a break between each two. So um, they're sort of learning about changing of speed because changing of speed is so important as well. Yeah. And uh, and if we take the same question, key workout for the swim, what would an example of that be? That... The swim, it depends on what kind of swimmer you are. Um, but the swim, I used to quite like a swim where we used to do, and this was this was with a group of guys up in Cronulla, so, you know, you've got your Chris McCormack's and people like that. We used to do three sets of um, a 400, and that was on about 550 or something. So it was just sort of like a swim through. And then there was four 100s on the 120 and then 1050s on the 45 and I think we then went back through that three times 
And because the distance, you know, there's a long 400 at a decent pace, not flat out, and then there were some fast 100s and then there were some short 50s and all that sort of mixing it up and, um, you know, your body had to adjust. I found those sessions quite good. But then you also had the other sessions where, you know, you've got um, hundreds on the 130, 120 and things like that. They were always pretty difficult. Yeah. Just, you know, you ended up doing 30 of them or something like that. So I think those kind of sessions are really good for triathlon swimming because that's really what the swim is about is getting up to a pace and then just holding it, holding it, holding it, holding it. Um, but then, you know, the other sessions that are quite useful is, you know, might be 20, 100s. They're on the two minutes, but do them all fast. So you get your quality in there. Um, but yeah, and I also used to like the Saturday afternoon swim because that was, uh, just cruising around and nice and relaxing. (laughs) (laughs) You've got to have your easy sessions as well. Yeah, yeah, nice for a change. Yes, and uh, and the bike. You mentioned the hills being important, but do you have any specific structure to some of the sessions that you would consider key workouts for the bike? Yeah, there's some sessions. So we always ride hills. I don't ever ride on the flats. I just I just don't see the point. You know, maybe after race day, if you want to go and ride down the beach, do that. So it's generally. Um, hilly terrain, dead roads, uh, in the sort of, you know, wind. So it's just tough environment that's just going to make you suffer even when you're not pushing hard. So you're getting that fitness on the bike and you're getting that awareness of, of what gears and, you know, how to sit on the bike when it's windy and so all that sort of stuff. But I do like, we used to do some 5K time trials and we used to have a road that was fairly flat, but very exposed, and we'd ride out through the hills to that road. And it was 5K time trials. And there was little sort of, I suppose, about a two-minute break in between each one. And then you do another 5K time trial. We used to do four of them. And another session we used to do was some two-minute efforts where you're riding a too big a gear but you get on top of it quickly, you stay seated and it's all out for two minutes and they give you that sort of power and that ability to sort of snap into things. And then we used to try and attack each other as you're getting towards the end of that. So you'd really you'd attack on top of an attack. <laughs> and then when everyone became too tired for that, we had to get a motor pacer in. So they would come round us. So that's sort of top-end stuff. But most of my riding is outside. I only ride indoors when it's raining or if there's lockdown. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, um, I don't like indoor training. And is that something that you also advise your athletes to, to ride outside as, as much as possible? I do. And, um, you know, if – well, the indoor sessions are just hard and they're miserable, I find. I – you know, I did triathlon because I love being outdoors. I love being fit. I love the outdoors. Um, I don't do it to, to sit and look at a screen. But having said that, they're starting to do e-racing. So <laughs> maybe that's where it's going. I hope not. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm actually sure that that's going to be a I – mean, it's already quite a big thing and it's probably going to be a it's bigger be a thing, thing in the future. But, uh, but yeah, it's, yeah, it's interesting to see where that's going. Like, is that – something that will be seen as 
like seen in the same vein as triathlon or cycling or will it see be seen more in the vein of esports of course you need to be like a super fit athlete to be successful at that so so in that way it would make sense that it's sports but at the same time there are still kind of question marks around the fairness of it although now in things like the world championships they are yeah. doing a lot of things to control it so so it's interesting to see to see where that's going um for sure so when it comes to distributing the time between the three disciplines between the swim and bike and and run uh, roughly how how do you distribute the the training time between between those three that's comes down to someone's background as well but generally I follow a middle distance run program and I fit the bike and the swim in around that so for example um with a middle distance run, you've got your Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday are the main hard sessions for the run and you'd have your Sunday long run and you'd have your Wednesday midweek semi-long run. So I try and keep those sessions in there. Um, now this is assuming you're at full volume. If a junior's coming in, they, they're going to do like a, a Tuesday track and they do the Saturday session, they wouldn't do the Thursday have the Thursday off or something like that. Um, and then I fit the bike in on a Monday, Wednesday, Friday. I found that the running helps the bike, but the bike doesn't help the run. So I, I don't like to have too much bike in there. If someone needs more bike, they could put it in on a Saturday afternoon, but I try and sort of stay away from that. And um, the swims are generally Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, if they need five. So Sunday afternoon's off or it's, you know, that's when you get your stretching and your um, your massage in or if you can get on a, in on a Sunday so you're ready for the, the week. And um, strength and conditioning is a Monday and a Friday. So it's kind of that is the general. I'm sorry, I- I, I missed that. Uh, so what, what would Sunday morning be? I think I missed it because Sorry, long uh, run. the connection kind of broke so, up yeah, a little Sunday bit. Yeah, Sunday morning would be a long run. Long run, okay, yeah. So the weekend is is mainly running. It's got a swim in there as well, but it's mainly running. Um, and, you know, obviously if you can't train full-time during the week, that becomes, you know, there's a bike in there. But that balance I found works really well in getting all three disciplines developing well. Um, but it's not to say that that's a solution. It's Yeah. Because, you know, you, you do have a lot of people say, okay, so what do you do here? What do you do there? And it's like, well, yeah, I, had, I don't think I've got an athlete to the level or the volume that I was able to do under a similar structure to that. But, you know, then again, I'm not trying to create me. I'm trying to create athletes that can sustain it uh, for a lot longer. Yeah. So what would your – the athletes that you have now that are training the most among your athletes, how much roughly – how many hours are they putting in per week? I don't do it so much on hours. I do it more on kilometres. So um, – They'd be swimming around twenty, and this is under twenty-three. So they're, you know, they're still a little bit. Yeah. I think they can get a little bit more volume in, but then again, if they don't have to, there's no need to. So it's sort of got to the point where this is this is a maintainable level and volume improvements continuing. So let's not push the envelope too hard. 
I'd rather have that consistency in there. So it's about 20K a week swimming. Quite often it's 15K a week. The bike is around 200 and the run is around 60 to 70. So that's um, in the middle of winter we can get it up to 80, but that's, you know, a Sunday run is a lot of running on trails and things like that. So we don't, we avoid concrete as much as we can for running. I think I think another thing with running is yeah. if you can run on trails, it improves your running like IQ because you, your feet, you have to think of where you're putting your feet. If you just plod, 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 plod down a, down a road, that's, I think that's very sort of um, basic running. But if you're running on trails and you've got to jump over a log and you've got to slip sideways in the mud and you've got to, you know, jump down an embankment and up a hill, and I think that really lifts the level of your running as well. So that's another way of improving your running skill, the lightness on the feet. Yeah, that, that's a great point. And I think the, the point you made before, I want to highlight as well, that as long as you keep seeing improvements, there is no point really trying to push the envelope. Like you, you, I mean, I think that it makes absolute sense what you say there. There's no need to try to heap on more volume as long as the athletes are improving. Then at some point, if they stagnate, sure, maybe then maybe that's the, the thing you have to do. But uh, but I think that, that's something that I want to highlight for for the listeners as well, that uh, that as long as you're seeing improvements on your current volume, then that's probably a good thing to keep doing that because it can maximize the chances of you having really good consistency in your training. Yeah, and I also think it's really important. It's quite often an athlete will say to me, oh, but last week or last month I ran this far or I swam this far. And it's like, well, you don't have to do that every month because if you do, you'll end up injured. And that's yeah. that's a lesson, going back to the start of this um, discussion, that's a lesson I'd like to tell my younger self. You don't have to keep doing what you did last week to be better next week. <laughs> yeah. You need the consistency, yeah. but you don't need the volume. Yes. Yeah. What's your view on uh, periodization of the training year? How, how does training change between the preparatory phase and a competitive phase of the season for example i think it's very different yeah I, I think it's very different so for example with the running the volumes are up a lot more in the winter and i don't i really don't think you can train much if you're in a racing block and you have to make sure that when you're not in a racing block you've done enough training that's going to get you through so so, so for example, in, in Melbourne, we were lucky enough to have some local races and I had an under-23 athlete and she's done a triathlon every second weekend for six weeks. And in between, there were some A-grade track and field races. So she's been running a 1,500 on the other weeks during the week. So it's, you know, the training between, and it's a six-week block and in two weeks, so not this weekend, next weekend, there's a race in Devonport in Tasmania in Australia and that's a national race. So she needs to perform at that. And so we had that sort of six-week block and then we've had a bit of a lapse of um, not a lapse, a, a break in racing of two weeks where she's actually been able to put two weeks of training together again ready for the, the last sort of um, national race. And it's really interesting that she said to me, oh, you know, I feel really good on the run. I'm really surprised that my legs feel so good. 
And I said, well, yeah, that's because you've been in a racing block and you've been having to sort of um, take that tiredness through because we're trying to peak for a national race down the end. So I'm I'm very much about someone who uses races to not to get themselves ready, but you use the smaller races to prepare yourself for the big ones. I don't think you can go into a race and go, right, I'm going to go and, you know, blow everyone away. You need to have about three or four races to get you really race sharp. Um, and I think running is a really good tool for that, short runs. Um, but, yeah, so the periodization. You've got to have the the longer miles. I don't think you stray away too far from speed in the off season. I do think you need to stay in touch with it. Otherwise, you do end up, you know, coming back into sort of spring and and starting to to do some speed work. And if you haven't done any, um, I think you do end up being a little bit prone to injuries. So I think you do need to stay in touch with speed. And that might look like you know, 1K reps or 800-metre reps or 600-metre reps rather than doing the fours and the threes. So I, I do think, and it might not be on the track, it might be on grass, you know, good grass ovals or something like that. So I do think you need to stay in touch with speed throughout the year, but the intensity and the quality, well, you shouldn't really say quality, should you? The intensity and the speed of the speed. I think needs to be modified in the winter. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and do you follow the same principle essentially on the on the bike and the swim? Do you have higher volume in those disciplines too in the preparatory phase, the but swim, you still keep in touch with the speed? Yeah, the the bike the bike you can pretty much you can you can spend a block in there in the middle of winter and you can just ride your bike. I don't think you need to do too much speed, but you need to make sure you're working in a terrain that's testing you anyway. So it's creating that sort of fartlek effect because you're having to go up and down hills and you're not, you know, it's like speed play. Um, the swim, I think the swim you need to stay very much in touch with speed. <laughs> but the swim is always different. Like you're never going to hop in the pool and just do 100 laps and say, Ray, I, won, I swim 5K. <laughs> Are you? You're always going to stay in touch with a bit of speed. So I think, yeah, I think the the swim is slightly different. You you do need to still do your reps and make sure you're keeping those cycles in in check. Yeah. And uh, a couple of questions around executing workouts. So let's start with perhaps the low intensity workouts, your endurance runs or rides. Uh, how do you advise your athletes execute them like and how do you prescribe them do you have a cap in terms of speed or heart rate or power or are you very much prescribing an rpe that they should keep to or or how 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 does that work for you yeah i it's generally rpe and i just call it time on the legs so it might be, you know, a 90-minute run, but it's just time on the legs. I don't want you to be puffed. I don't want you to be um, – you should just have that tiredness sort of creeping on the body just because there's been that time. Um, and sometimes as we approach – so, we, you know, you've gone through the winter and you've done your um, long runs and things like that, and as we sort of approach races coming up, at the end of the long run I get them to do 10 minutes – and they might be just on an oval or it might be on a path and because we, we generally run off-road. And it'll be 10 minutes, a 15 seconds fast, 45 seconds jog. So they've been 
time on the legs, you know, just ticking it over, ticking it over, ticking it over. And then they do 10 minutes at the end where it's fast, ticking it over, it's fast, ticking it over. And it's quite amazing how hard it is to sort of start to snap the legs back into a bit of speed. But I, I kind of like taking the body out of its comfort zone because, you know, it's, it gets – I do think the body gets lazy and the body is very, very good at adapting to whatever you give it. So if every now and then you shock it with 10 minutes of what and, you know, <laughs> not fast, slow, fast, slow, I think that sort of stuff lifts your fitness as well. Um, but with the bike, you know, it's time out on the bike and – you know, it might be a day where it's, okay, if you're feeling tired, today is a small ring day, yep. not, not a compact ring, <laughs> a small ring. Yeah. But, yeah. On, on the run, just to, to give an example. So it's, yeah. Sorry, if, yeah, just to give an example on the run in terms of pace, okay, it might not, might not be completely fair given that your athletes are running off-road a lot, but if you have an athlete that i don't know can you give an example of what an athlete might run for their 5k or 10k or in a triathlon 5k or 10k what what their pace might be there and then in contrast well what is their pace on on one of those kind of easy long runs time on time on the legs days yeah okay um well i suppose an athlete that races around a i don't know 310 Okay, they would do their long run around for five k or ten k uh, four minutes. So say five k, yeah. Because I don't, my athletes aren't that old yet. So say five k. Yeah. So say this yeah. is doing a three ten. Um, actually, it'd be a bit slow, wouldn't it? Three fifteen. She, but she does her long runs quicker than four minutes. Um, it should be around four minutes. Yeah. I think. I do know that yeah. I struggle to keep keep up with them. So it must be around um three fifty to four minutes. Because um, yeah. you know, because of my heart condition, I can't elevate my heart rate. <laughs> so four fifteen is about as fast as I can go over a long period of time. Right. So it's under yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. it's and you also you have some good days. Like sometimes you go for a run and you have some really good days. And I and I don't think a coach should say don't have a you know don't go hard. I mean, they. I need to retract that comment. They do need to say don't go hard when when it's an easy day. But sometimes you just have a good day where the time on your legs feels smooth, feels comfortable, and everything comes more easily. As long as you're not straining to do that, I think it's okay to do it every now and then. Yeah, uh, but but that's interesting uh, because it gives us a sense that uh, I mean, okay, it's it's easy compared to the race pace, but actually, if, for that level of runner, even three fifty to four minutes, it's not you know it's not a slow jog by any stretch. It's a uh, it, it's just kind of solid endurance running steady steady is yeah. what, what i would say that it is rather than rather than a plod so which is which makes sense then you can do it with good form and yeah. everything as as well but but also i do know yeah. that there are there are several groups on the wts circuit where they would do their their easy running quite a lot slower than that so i think there are just different different philosophies around yeah, that I and know. probably different different athlete types as well like a more 
slow twitch dominant athletes tend to run their easy runs faster than a more fast twitch dominant athlete for example yeah i yeah i i do know a lot of people do do a lot of and that that is probably one of the differences in my training with um training over here um the long run pace i you know but i mean you you don't really know what if you're watching them on socials or um things like that you know a lot of the I'm not sure how legitimate the training sessions are, but um, there is a lot of slow running going on on everyone's socials. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, that might yeah, just, be just, the from, just from just, just from talking to coaches, uh, I, I do think that that exists, yeah. even though maybe social media isn't the the best way to get an uh, like an actual overview of, yeah, of what it looks like. Yeah. And what what about the the hard workouts? So when you have, for example, one of those track workouts or or a harder swim set, what is your philosophy around that? Do you want like do your athletes typically kind of do a best best effort and like kind of go to the well in the workouts, or do you advise a common strategy that some coaches use is always leave one or two reps left in the tank? What, what's what's your thinking around that? A mix of both because some days, you know, some days it's time to just um, use everything up and have a hard day and um, some days it's leave a little bit in the tank. The younger they are, the more I leave in the tank. Um, and as athletes get older, I think there's certain sessions that they should do just to just to have that reality check. And I think those sort of sessions have to be done well away from race blocks um, unless you're going for pure speed and you've got lots of rest. But um, there, I mean, there's occasions, I, and I think there's no real, this is the thing with coaching and with philosophies and stuff, there's no fixed rule. So I think you need to consider everything when you're doing it. So some days, you know, the athlete might turn up, they might have been, they might have gone through a couple of, I don't know, a couple of sessions where they're late or they're disorganised and, you know, when you ask them for more, they don't have it. So there's something obviously going on in their life and you need to sort of make sure that you're not pushing them over the edge. Um, if an athlete's coping well, turning up, ready to go, why not start sticking another rep? <laughs> it's always, yeah. you know, it's good to see what you can do and quite often you can – they go, wow, I never thought I could do that. So those kind of sessions are really valuable too. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think it's 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 a good good approach to have a mix of both there. And it makes sense that the the older the athlete is, then uh the more important it becomes to sometimes do those workouts where you really push yourself to the max because then you're probably closer to your potential and you need a bigger stimulus to to improve beyond mm. that rather than when you're young and and you don't necessarily need to, as we talked about with volume as well, you, you don't need to do too much yeah. and you can still keep improving uh, despite not pushing to the maximum every single time. Um, regarding yeah. testing, you mentioned you mentioned that in uh, terms of swimming, but um, what what testing do you do you do with your athletes in the different disciplines and, and how do you use it? So testing is um, 
I think quite often difficult. I was, as an athlete myself personally, I was never happy with a test I did. So I'm very sceptical about relying on tests too much. I, I like to see testing and also data from training and I like to look at that and then I like to look at a race and then I like to see why the test wasn't better or, you know. But having said that, I do take my athletes to the AIS, which is the Australian Institute of Sport, and we do, um, you know, tests, VO2 max tests on the treadmill. And I like to look at the areas that um, I think I can improve. And then I talk to the um, physiologists about how they can improve those areas and test my theories, you know, should I shorten rest here to push that there and... (laughs) And they're like, oh, yeah, that'd work. And, you know, and then the next time you come in for a testing, there's a slight improvement or, um, you know, if, if there isn't an improvement or if there's, um, you know, a slip backwards, I think it's really important to make sure the athlete understands that, you know, a test can just be maybe you're tired or, you know, sometimes you just don't feel good running on a treadmill. Um, but, I mean, testing is good as some, some sort of base data modelling of your athlete and as long as it's going in the right direction over a period of time, it's not always going to be, yay, this is great because it's triathlon and it's not always great. <laughs> so, um, yeah. yeah, and in the swim, the swim is a hard one because the swim is more about um, sets and cycles and how easily you're, you're holding them. Doing heart rates in the pool, I know when I was tested for heart rates in the pool, it was like I don't even have time to get the thing to your neck or whatever to, to do it. So we sort of just work on, on cycles and times and um, RPEs. But yeah. yeah. And the bike, obviously, with power cranks. Yeah. 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 Do, do you do any sort of testing so it's, with, it's the power meter, with the power meter on the bike? Well, we are, we do, but we just um, just managed to get hold of a, a power crank sponsor, and so now we're sort of fiddling around with gearing and <laughs> gearing and power cranks. And um, one of my athletes is getting a new bike, so it's all you know when everything just goes. Oh god, this is getting too hard. Yeah. But it, it, <laughs> it should be all together in a month. And then right. what I would like to do with that is you know to do a test at the AIS or something like that in a, in a lab and then see what it's like in training and then also see what a race is like and then you can sort of, I think, you can bring it all together. I think it's good to look at everything. But, it, I mean, having said that, if you don't have power cranks and if you don't have the ability to test, you can do a lot of things with a stopwatch, RPE, um, you know, making sure the weather's similar. And um, do your own tests. It's yeah. very simple. Strava, the day. You've got to Strava get allows you allows you to else. do some good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Strava, yeah. Strava gives you some good good opportunity yeah. to to work on those segments and see how you're improving. Uh, if if that is the case, um, let's yeah. talk a little bit about age group uh, training and and coaching, uh, because you also do that. So first of all, one very important question for a lot of listeners is kind of advice around how to fit in triathlon training around a busy life schedule uh, with work, family, and uh, 
making sure that you can do the training, but also adapt to it and recover from it. What, what advice would you give there? I, I really admire um, age group athletes because I was very fortunate that, you know, it was swim, bike, run, eat, sleep, race. So fitting everything in, I think you need to make sure that the training that you are doing is really specific for what you need and it's not just training if you're training with a group. It's not just training that's simple for the group to do. So you still, you know, you still need to do stay in touch with your speed work. You still need to stay in touch with your um, technique and skills. And I do think if possible, if, you know, you've got your Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday and then, you know, middle of the week, get your session done in the morning because your day is going to probably going to go pear-shaped because you've got a, a, a job. Um, and oh, the other thing, oh, I just had it just gone out of my mind. Oh, yeah, and the other thing is to, to also remember to sleep in, like give yourself some mornings off on the easier days. Um, for you, apart from that, it's, it's just a really, really tough gig doing age group and – full-time job yeah but i do agree that's also kind of my number one advice for in terms of time management at least would be primarily relying on morning workouts because that's how you get consistency much better i've seen it in so many athletes that that switching from being a workout in the evening person to workout in the morning person consistency tends to really go up significantly for a lot of athletes if, if they haven't been consistent before yeah. but but i do do like that advice as well of yeah. getting getting some mornings that you that you sleep in what about yeah the, and, i mean if, if you get your main session done in the morning sorry oh sorry yeah no sorry. Go, go on with with that uh, trail of foot well if i mean if you get your training your hard training done in the morning or your main session done in the morning there is a chance that you can train in the afternoon so you can fit in some sort of easier session or a recovery session or you might be able to you know have a swim on the way home or something like that so um definitely the way to go in mornings yeah yeah exactly um what about the similarities and differences in terms of training structure and training approach so obviously it tends to be a bit scaled down for age groupers because they don't have enough time as the pros to train but uh, but other than that compared to the things we've been talking about here for your under 23s uh, developing new stars or triathlon so to say uh, what and considering also that age groupers tend to train for a non-draft racing whether it's sprint or olympic or half or full ironman what are some key similarities and differences between age group and pro training? Well, I think there's a lot of similarities. I think um, the age groupers need to still follow that um, sort of routine of doing, you know, the intense sessions and doing the easy, easy long sessions and the time on the legs and things like that. I think perhaps because there isn't that time or that ability to recover between sessions so much because they're at work and, you know, they've got families and things like that. I think it's important that, you know, maybe one of the intense sessions is removed, particularly in running. Um, you don't have to remove running completely on that particular day. You could just turn it into a jog um, with some easy run-throughs. 
but um, you know the the ability to, to have treatment and you know all that sort of maintenance stuff for age groupers is harder because there's just simply not enough time in the day. Um, so I yeah I think there's a lot of similarities. I think they still need you know regardless of who you are, you still need to work on your skill, your technique, your form, your speed. Got to make sure you're getting your endurance in there, your recovery. So it's um, it's really it's about time management and getting everything done. Yeah. What about differences for age groupers? I, th- I also think. Yeah, I, well, I think the difference is is that the weekends become really, really valuable and really, really key to those longer sessions. Um, so your midweek, which is you know important for an elite athlete tends to move to the weekend and, you know, maybe you can also bring it into Monday morning so you could sort of have two and a half days there. So it's, um, yeah, the weekend becomes really important. I think I think that's the key difference between age groupers and um, elites. Yeah. And, and one final question on this topic. So if you have an age grouper training for sprints and Olympics versus one training for an Ironman and let's say that they're both kind of in that two months out of their goal races time frame. So things are starting to get uh, specific. Uh, what what are the differences there? And, and one key question here or sub question is how much bigger do you think the time requirement is if you're preparing for an Ironman for an age grouper? I think if you're racing for an Ironman, the time requirement for training is much bigger and I do think a lot of age groupers underestimate that. I quite often have people contact me and say, oh, I'd like to do an Ironman in six months and I ask them, okay, you know, when was, how much training have you been doing? Oh, nothing. <laughs> so I, I do think you need, to <laughs> you need to have a bit of base. Don't If you go and do an Ironman and you haven't given yourself enough time to prepare, you are going to end up hating it and you'll get through it because you you know you're that type of person you'll get through it but it's if you haven't done one before and you want to do one in six months time that's a really really big ask um with regard to two months out for a sprint athlete i think you'd start to look look to races look to you know how, how can i do to start sharpening things up and speeding things speeding things up so a sprint athlete, I'd like to see them do some races and that might be some fun runs or it might be um, some open water swim events because assuming they're going into summer, there might be some local short races on. Um, with an Ironman athlete, they would need to start, um, well, they should have already started, but they need to be really stuck into the thick of working out what their pacing is, what the nutrition is, what their plan is. You know, they need to have worked out uh, all the different, what they're going to wear, um, what foods they can keep down. So everything has to be really, really nailed and you have to do that also while, you, while you're while um, training at pace. So um, there's no point saying, yeah, I can. Um, I had a friend who used to like to eat fried chicken and I said, well, how are you going to do that? And he says, oh, well, I normally just stop and eat it. And I said, well, <laughs> you're in a race now. <laughs> so that was that was really odd. He, he hadn't even considered that. So you have to do all this stuff at pace on the move. 
So if you have to choose something like fried chicken, it's not going to work. So, it, yeah. you know, you've really got <laughs> to think difficult. about everything in Iron Man, your nutrient. <laughs> and even little things like um, you've, you've got to do the open water swim, you've got to be able to swim that in open water. I did a 6K swim once, just I don't know why I did it. But I, about 4K in, I got seasick because it was sort of in the ocean and I felt absolutely awful and I thought, wow, that's only, I've only just done an Ironman swim. So you've got to make sure you've, you've covered all those things off. Yeah, oh, that, that's all really great advice. So let's move into the rapid fire questions here. So these are just one sentence answers. And the first one is, what's your favorite book, blog or resource related to triathlon? Well, I have to say my book, wouldn't I? Hardwired. Yeah, or yeah you my can. favorite and, uh, book when I was it. racing. <laughs> well, I've just written my book, Autobiography, Hardwired, Life, Death and Triathlon by Emma Carney. So it's uh, it's a good read, I've been told, which is fortunate because it would be very embarrassing if I wrote a bad book. Yeah, we'll, we'll link to that in the in the episode description so listeners can go and check it out. Uh, oh, okay, I'm definitely looking forward to re- reading it myself as well. And uh, you, you said you had a book that you enjoyed when you were racing? Oh, yeah, sorry. Running with the Legends. It was all about the legends of running in those days. So this is really, really old. You know, I'm, I'm quite old. Um, and it was just stories about athletes and how they trained. So anything to do with that, that sort of background, that's the sort of stuff I like. Yeah. What's your favorite piece of gear or equipment? Not compact gearing, at least. No, you'd have to say a really nice bike. I'm riding the um, Canyon Air Road at the moment and you just can't go past a good bike, can you? Yeah, no, that's that's great. And finally, what's a personal habit that's helped <laughs> you achieve success? Not giving up and not accepting no and just keep on going even when things look like they're uh, broken. Yeah. Perfect. Uh, finally, uh, tell people where they can find out more about you, like website, social media, anything that, uh, yeah, where listeners oh. can follow you and, and keep track with what you're doing. And, and again, where can they find your book, Amazon and uh, places like that? Or, uh, yeah. yeah, all the, these things. Well, yeah, my book's available online. Yeah, so um, I have a website, emmacarney.com. My socials are Emma E. Carney and um, Carney spelled C-A-R-N-E-Y. My book's available online. Just Google uh, Hardwired Life, Death and Triathlon or Google Emma Carney Autobiography. And um, I'm at, well, I used to be when we were allowed to travel. I do a lot of work with World Triathlon Development. So if you ever want to contact me through World Triathlon, they've got all my contact details too. So, uh yeah, I, what I really love about triathlon is the community around it and I'll forever be involved in triathlon. So if you've ever got a question, you just get on my website or get me through socials and uh, I'll always respond. So thanks for having me today. Yeah, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you so much, Emma. No worries. I hope that you enjoyed that interview. As usual, you can find the show notes on scientifictriathlon.com and you can find the links there as well as in the podcast episode description. 
You'll find Emma's website, Twitter, and Instagram, and also a link to her autobiography, which is called Hardwired Life, Death, and Triathlon. On Thursday, we will have another Q&A coming out, so subscribe to the podcast if you aren't already, so you automatically get all new shows when they are released. And then on Monday, I interview Leslie Patterson, who is a multiple world champion in Xterra and ITU cross triathlon. And she is also a coach. She's now retired from pro triathlon. So we will discuss her training and coaching philosophy, both generally, but also we will go into some specifics around training for off-road triathlon or Xterra. If you are looking for training plans or coaching services, you know where to go. Scientifictriathlon.com is where we have all the information about those products and services. And finally, big thanks to our sponsors, Roka, that you can find on roka.com. Uh, go and check out their wetsuits, dry suits, swimskins, goggles, high-performance eyewear, and prescription glasses and sunglasses. And get 20% off your order with a promo code that you can get on roka.com forward slash TTS. And thank you to Senate that you can find on senateswimtrainer.com. Use the Senate Swim Trainer to improve your technique, power, and stamina, even when you don't have time to go to the pool or pools are closed. And practice good core activation and a high elbow catch thanks to the engineering of the swim bench. Get 20% off your order on the Swim Trainer with the promo code that you can get on senateswimtrainer.com forward slash TTS. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving craft love.